So let's pray. Thank you, our Father, for the moments that we share in fellowship in Christ together. Songs of worship, bringing our request to you, and now opening your word. Please speak by the power of your spirit. Thank you, Lord. We look forward to your work through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, during our recent vacation, Emily and I had the opportunity to visit a very famous federal penitentiary. We were guests. Uh, We visited there. And this particular penitentiary uh, housed a number of notorious criminals. Um, Some of you may wonder what we're doing visiting a penitentiary during our vacation times. I just want you to know only the best for my wife, you know. Um, Yeah. This is one of the really renowned federal penitentiaries of our world. And uh, probably the the most uh, noted criminal who was housed at this place was El Capone, who dates back 100 years, a Chicago gangster, racketeering, all of that kind of thing, Uh, just a murderer. They finally got him on tax evasion, and he went to this particular, spent part of his time in incarceration at this particular place. Um, I was interested in touring it and learning and seeing the place and the horrors of imprisonment and just imagining Afterward, I came across a quotation from El Capone, which I guess particularly is striking to me. Capone said, I've spent the best years of my life giving people the lighter pleasures, helping them to have a good time, and all I get is abuse, the existence of a haunted man. I read that quotation and I thought, you got to be kidding me. What he did in his racketeering, the lighter pleasures? Helping people to have a good time? I'm being abused for doing that? Many people would look at that and say, that's nothing but twisted lies. How could a person come to that point? There must be something mentally wrong. Actually, El Capone's quotation is a pretty good illustration of the passage that we've been studying together in Romans 1. Because in Romans 1, particularly the verses toward the end of the chapter, for example, verse 18 says, all of us tend to suppress the truth in our lives. We can take what is true and we can suppress it and push it down and hold it down, sort of like a police officer putting his his knee on the neck of a person, holding them down so they can't even breathe. The suppression of truth. Paul says human beings have the ability to take truth, what is true in their lives, and suppress it and hold it down. And then later in verse 25 he says, and after doing that for a while, you can then actually get so used to the lie, you can exchange the truth for a lie. Suppress it, exchange it. Suppress it, exchange it. Suppress it, suppress it, exchange it. Get to the point where you can actually say, well, the stuff I was doing in my life was just for the, for the lighter pleasures of, 
of people. And for anyone to see otherwise, it's just an abuse of me. Oh. It's easy to see it in Capone's life. <clears throat> Several years ago, on another vacation that Emily and I went, we were in Germany and we visited a German concentration camp from World War II where Jews were imprisoned and tortured and executed in gas chambers. I still vividly remember the sense of darkness as we toured the facility. At this point, some of you are probably saying, boy, I don't want to go on vacation with you. I mean, places you go, I mean, only the best for Emily, you know. I remember learning at that uh, concentration camp that when the liberating troops came in and freed the camp, they took people from the community around the camp. We could see the houses. They took people from the community around that imprisonment and they forced them to walk through and see the execution and the torture chambers and the, the gas chambers. And the reason that the liberating armies did that was they said, if we don't do this, these people in this community will deny that this ever happened. They'll say, oh, that could have never happened. This is our community. They will suppress the truth and eventually they'll exchange it for a lie. See, this is the ability that human beings have. Our own president declared the needs to take pictures as other national officials take pictures of the concentration camp. Because future generations will not believe that this could happen. They will suppress the truth and eventually they'll say, it never happened. We have people to this day that say it never happened. <clears throat> There's something about human nature that is quite capable of suppressing truth and exchanging it. Exchanging it for something that is untrue. Therefore, the scriptures talk about how people can come to the point in their lives of calling what is good evil and calling evil what is good. In fact, in the latter days, we will see more and more of this kind of thing. In fact, I believe this is now the world that we live in. A world that calls good evil and evil good. Many have exchanged truth for a lie. <clears throat> Perhaps in our world, this is even illustrated in the suppression of truth that takes place. <coughs> Our world now says, many people in our world say there's no such thing as absolute truth. We have so suppressed truth down, we have held it down and pushed it down so it can't even breathe. And so many have done it. We can now exchange the truth for a lie and say there's no such thing as absolute truth. This actually is the story of Romans chapter 1. People suppress and then exchange. Suppress the truth 
exchange the truth for a lie. Last week in a sermon, Pastor Matt introduced us to the concept of total depravity. Not that you or I have sinned to the max, but boy, internally, we are as filthy and dark as can be. This is Romans chapter 1. Today we enter chapter 2. And this is equally, perhaps more scary. Because Romans 1 was about them, the El Capones who can twist the truth and exchange it for a lie. And Romans 2 now stops talking about them and it changes the pronoun to you and me. And it says we suppress truth and we exchange truth for a lie. Who, not me? I just did it. Be very careful. This is where Romans 2 goes. This is not a fun passage. But boy, it's a truthful passage. And it fits the theme we have taken for the book of Romans. The gospel. Understand it and live it. Romans is all about the gospel. Seeing it more clearly. Understand it. Opening chapters about how desperately we need it. Most of us understand Jesus died for our sins, but we, do we understand the wretchedness of our sin? The opening chapters show how dark it is, how totally depraved we are. And we begin to waddle in the filth of it. And we see what we do. And then in the next few chapters, the gospel is glorious and brilliant in its light. And we see the gospel in its power most clearly when we see how desperately we needed it. Understand it, the gospel, understand it, but also live it. The final chapters of this book say, now that you know it and you see what you were and what Jesus did for you, now Live the gospel every day of your lives. That's the book of Romans. Today we're in chapter 2. Follow along as I read the opening 16 verses. <clears throat> you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same thing. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such thing is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence, <clears throat> Excuse me. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth 
and follow evil. There will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. <coughs> for God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their heart, their conscience is also bearing witness in their thoughts, and now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. <clears throat> In these verses, God is coming out from chapter 1 saying we tend to suppress truth and we exchange it for a lie. And he's saying that it's not just the Capones, it's not just the prison camps of World War II. In chapter 2, he begins with the word, you, you also do this. Every one of us do it. Chapter 2 describes our Lord as the perfect and righteous judge, the one who gets it right every time, who never spins the truth. And this chapter opens by describing the perfect judge who is the true judge. Starting in verse 1, you, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, the Al Capones of our time, for whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. On our screen, I've underlined the first word, you, and then the last phrase, do the same things. You do the same things. The pronouns in this chapter change from them, all what they do, and how we disagree with all of the evil in the world, and that the world should be judged. And God turns right around and says, you therefore, you also have no excuse. You pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge others, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. That is a very hard word to hear. We do the same things. How can you say we do the same things as El Capone? God, how can you say we do the same things as the very evil people of our world? Chapter 1 closes in verses 29, 30, and 31 with a list of 21 sins. It would be hard to read the list of 21 and studying it without seeing that at least one of those 
applies to you. God says, uh, look at the list. Surely you can see how you tend to suppress the truth in that area of your life. You'll exchange it for a lie. Back a little earlier in chapter 1, Paul proved this to the people at Rome. Besides the list of 21 sins, he mentioned one earlier that most people of his day did not like. It was a sin that was quite common in the Roman Empire, the sin of homosexuality. In reading verses 26, 27, and 28, Paul is condemning it, and he's saying it is wrong, and most of the people of that day, whether Christian or not, looked at the homosexuality of their day, and they said, it's wrong, we don't like it. And then Paul turns right around in chapter 2 and says, you judge them for that, and you're doing the same thing. Wait, well, I'm, not, I'm not a homosexual person. Really? Look at the list of 21 things. You do the same thing in the same way that someone who is caught in such sin that you do not like, they suppress truth and they exchange it for a lie. You do the same thing with your 21 and you exchange the truth for a lie. Oh, dear. I do the same thing the them of chapter 1 do? Oh, the wretchedness of sin in our souls, the sense of judgmentality that comes through. It's interesting in chapter 1, when you look at Paul's references in verses 26, 27, and 28 to homosexuality, <clears throat> many Christians have, many Bible teachers have interpreted those verses to say, Homosexuality is the bottom of the barrel of sin. I used to believe that. Then I studied the passage. That is not what the passage is teaching. The passage is teaching that when people suppress truth in their lives, they take something like that and they say, that can't be true, that can't be true, that's not what I feel, that's not what I feel, that's not what I feel, and they suppress it and they suppress it. Eventually they exchange it for a lie. All of us do the same thing. Pick any one of our 21 sins mentioned at the end of the chapter. We'll all do the same thing. We'll suppress it. And we'll say, oh, it's not that bad. It's not that big a deal. Everybody's doing it. We'll go on and on and on. That's what we do. So someone has wisely said, in life we are not in the same boat. We each have our own sins, but we are all in the same storm. Paul is very clear on this. Every one of us, including you and me, we all suppress truth in our lives. And this is one more reason why it is so critically important that we're careful who we spend our time with and how much time we put in with God's word that will help keep us true if we will submit to it. Verse 2, Paul says, Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. God will always judge on truth, on the basis of truth, for he is Truth, he is the true judge. 
You say, well, I still don't know that I really do it as bad as those other people do. You just did it. You just took your sin before a perfect and holy God. Then you suppressed it and said, somebody else is worse than yours. And you exchanged the truth about your very sin for a lie thinking you were better than someone else. This is the truth of Romans 1 and 2, saying we are far more sinful than we understand. The total depravity of our sin nature is very deep. This is why we need such a great and glorious gospel. Boy, you start to see this and you realize how rich the love of God was that loved us while we were still sinners. He died for us. And so when we step back and we say, but everybody does it, we're just suppressing truth. It doesn't hurt anyone. Of course it hurts someone. It's hurting you. And it hurt Jesus that sent him to the cross. He died for that sin. And we suppress truth by telling ourselves it's not hurting anyone. Well, I never murdered anybody. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that if you've been so angry with somebody, you almost like wish you could have gotten away with hurting them, you've as good as killed them. Not that you should go ahead now and kill them. That's a different action. Same sin. Just like you can say, oh, I've never committed adultery. But Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you've lusted after a person, you've as good as done it. Not that you should then just say, well, I've done it, so I might as well go ahead. No, no. Just like to be angry is not the same as murder. Don't go have the immoral relationship if you had the lust. Remember the great man of God, David, who had a heart after God. He had his bad moments too. He once took another man's wife in adultery and then he killed that man to cover up her pregnancy. The prophet Nathan came to him and recast David's story. David, what would you do about this, King David? A very wealthy man who had many, many flocks, he took the lamb of a poor man who had only one lamb, and he took that lamb as his own. David was very angry in his self-righteousness, and he said, that man should die. He should repay well, many times over. And Nathan pointed his finger at him and said, David, you're the man. David could easily suppress truth in his own life, but when he sought for somebody else, he judged them. Suddenly, as Nathan confronted him, David saw what he had done. And he took the only appropriate action. He repented of suppressing the truth in his life and exchanging the truth and believing the lies that he had chosen to believe. He was okay. He was the king. He could do what he wanted. These opening verses of Romans 12 talk about a perfect judge who always judges truthfully. He gets it right. Now we move beyond him being the perfect judge who is truthful and we move to the perfect judge who is 
impartial. Verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgments will be revealed. I have underscored storing up wrath. God is patient and he is loving. When people sin, when nations sin, that does not mean God immediately judges. He patiently waits for their repentance. Adam and Eve sinned. They did not die immediately. They lived lives. They saw the consequences of their sin. Wrath was stored up. After them in the time of Noah, the, evil, the world was a very evil place. God spoke of it. He did not like it. And he started down a path of judgment. More and more wrath is being building up, building up, building up, stored up. Until the flood would come, it took Noah 100 years to build the ark. The wrath of God was storing up. Nation upon nation through the Old Testament walked away from God. Even Israel, pagan nations. <coughs> God's wrath was stored up until a point that God said, enough. And he intervenes with judgment. The wrath of God stored up. Perhaps it is best seen in light of his son. Centuries, people lived in sin. Nations lived in sin. God's wrath was being stored up. Christ comes. 33 years, he dies on the cross. God empties his wrath on his own son for our sin. It is still happening today. The wrath of God is being stored up. We sin and we think we got away with it. Nothing happened. We think we're okay. God loves and he patiently waits for repentance. But his wrath is being stored up. It happens with nations today. Good nations like the United States that moves away from God. And then something catastrophic happens and we wonder if this is the wrath of God. A 9-11, school shootings, whatever, COVID. And we ask the question, is this the wrath of God that has been stored up? Don't know. Maybe it's just consequences. But mark it down. Because of our stubborn and our unrepentant hearts, the wrath of God is being stored up against us. And someday in the day of God's wrath, his righteous judgments will be revealed. This is very, very hard for people to understand. Look at verse 6. God will give to each person according to what he has done. He is the impartial judge. Not in your timing, 
God, why don't you judge the Capone sooner? Not in my timing, but in his perfect timing. Look at verses 7 and 8. For those who by persistence are doing good, seeking glory and honor and immortality, he'll give them eternal life. But there's a second group of people, those who are self-seeking, who will reject the truth and follow evil. There will be wrath and anger for them. Two groups of people. In verse 7, some would say, oh, so if I just persist and I do good and glory and honor and immortality, I seek that, he'll give me eternal life. I can earn my eternal life. That is not what the scriptures teach. You can't force that into a verse like this when the rest of scripture is so clear that's not how it happens. Those who persist are obviously those who know him because no person persists in following God. We have a totally depraved nature. And by nature, we will not persist in following him. Verse 7, those who know him, they're the ones who will receive eternal life. But those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth, they suppress it, they exchange it, they follow evil, there will be wrath, and there will be anger for them. Now let's get down to life, where we live it in 2022. Do you know people who in their lifestyle, they are not living according to scriptural standards? Even people who claim to be Christian, they may take the truth of God's word and say, well, that's what you say. It's a, I says it says this, and they reinterpret scripture. And you look at their life, and they tell you, now that they're on this new path, they are happy, and they're at peace. And you can't justify it. You can't, how, how can you do that? Well, they're suppressing. They're exchanging truth for a lie. Of course they're happy and at peace. The battle that they once experienced in their very heart and soul is now over. They don't know it, but they've lost the battle. They think they've won. In reality, they have lost. They can't see it yet. It may be days, weeks, months, years, even eternity, but sooner or later, the wrath of God that has been stored up will be released against their actions. One thing we know from Romans 2, God is the perfect judge. He is truthful, and he is totally impartial. And those who suppress truth and exchange it for lies will receive the wrath of God. Now, that is not a popular message. But it's filled with truth. Look at it now or look at it later, but you're going to look at it. Suppress it if you want now. Exchange it for some lie, but eventually the wrath of God comes, and it will not go well. Verse 9, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. You say, what does that mean? Obviously, God's <coughs> excuse me. Obviously, God's wrath will fall at some point. 
Interestingly, he says, to the Jew first and then for the Gentile. That is not a new phrase to us. We know it from chapter 1. The glorious gospel of Jesus came to the Jew, but also for the Gentile. It came to the Jew first, then for the Gentile. In the same way God is impartial, judgment will fall to the Jews who have received the most revelation first, and they rejected it. But it will also come to the Gentiles. Even those who do not have as much revelation, God's wrath will come. And verse 11 says, for God does not show favoritism. He is totally impartial. He is the true judge. Closing verses of this section move beyond his truthfulness and his, his uh, impartiality. It moves to the fact that he is the consistent judge. Look at verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. All, all, all. It is repeated twice here. Everyone, a totally consistent judge. Those who sin apart from the law, the Gentiles who did not receive the law, those who are under the law, the Jews who receive the law, doesn't matter what your situation is, you will be held accountable for the truth that you have had. Wow. He is the totally consistent judge. And he ends by saying, verse 16, this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Oh boy, the gospel declares some amazing things. It shows the wretchedness of our sinfulness and our suppression of truth and our exchanging truth for a lie. But the gospel comes right back and says, in spite of all of that, God still loves you. And this is the gospel. There's bad news and there's good news. The bad news is it's far worse than you can imagine. The good news is the gospel of God is far more powerful than you can imagine. This is the book of Romans. Notice the other underlined word, men's secrets. It's a term for mankind. Not just males, sorry gals, you don't get off on this one. Everybody's got secrets. There are things about our lives that we're ashamed of for the past, things that we've done, attitudes and actions that we have carried out that are wrong. And we don't want anyone to know. But this passage is saying, this will take place on the day when God will judge man mankind's secrets through Jesus Christ. You can be sure of this. The day is coming when secrets will no longer be secrets. This has been true of humanity all along. Go back to the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, who ate of the fruit as they were not to have eaten of it. They disobeyed God. And what did they do? They were ashamed. They wanted to keep a secret. They sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness that they didn't, hadn't even realized before. They hid from God. Shh, we got a secret. 
We ate of the fruit. God comes walking in the garden. Adam, where are you? God knew exactly what bush he was hiding behind. God was calling him to accountability. Adam and Eve know the secret is not a secret. God knew all along. Their fig leaves could not hide their shame, their nakedness. And here's the beauty of the gospel. Even in the opening chapters of Genesis, God came along and he slew an animal. The Bible doesn't tell us which animal. I'm convinced it was a lamb, like a future lamb who would be slain for the sins of mankind. And God slays the animal and fashions garments to cover their sin and their nakedness. And so for us, Christ dies for our sins to clothe us in the righteousness of Christ. This is the book of Romans. Boy, are we in trouble. Far worse than any of us know. But boy, is there a great gospel that's far greater than any of us know. Would you reach for your elements for communion right now? Tying this directly into a lamb who would be shed, shedding his blood for us, giving his very life for us so that we could be clothed of all things in the righteousness of Christ Jesus, total perfect holiness. All sin is gone. That is what Jesus did for us. Sin far greater than any of us could possibly imagine. Let us remember that when Jesus instituted this right before the cross, he told his disciples to continue to do this until he returned. We're to take a piece of bread or crackers and remember that just like that cracker, that bread speaks of the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. He gave his very life, his body for us. His blood was shed on our behalf that our sin could be forgiven. Would you take your piece of bread here in the auditorium at home? Just take it. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What an amazing gospel, Father. What an amazing plan. Our whole is so much deeper than we can even begin to imagine. Our total depravity, our judgmental spirits. But thank you that you now have sent the Savior to experience your stored up wrath for our sin. We receive that salvation by faith. And now take your cup, please. 
This cup is a new covenant in my blood, Jesus said. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you, Father. The blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ was shed for our sin. To even have the audacity that we think we can be good enough to get into your heaven, you as a perfect, holy God. Thank you, even though we have not understood, you understood. And you, the perfect judge, get it. You knew we would need grace and forgiveness. And so you poured your wrath on your son. What an amazing gospel. Far richer and more brilliant in light than we can even imagine. Thank you for Jesus and his sacrifice. His body, his blood on our behalf. Amen. And now together, following our tradition here at Calvary, <clears throat> we'll sing together, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. So, yeah, you can stand. Dan, you're over there. Please lead us. for the gospel of Jesus Christ, Father. May we see our need more clearly. And because of that, may the gospel sparkle even brighter than ever in our hearts and minds. It is so rich, it is so pure, it is perfect. And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, May he equip us with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.